Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety podcast with me, Caroline Foran. I'm going to keep today's intro super short and sweet because I have a lot of drilling and hammering and just bulldozing going on around me with construction in my area, which cannot be avoided uh, as I'm not in studio. But anyway, time to tune out of that and tune into an incredible woman, Deborah Somerin, author of Believing in Me. Here she shares her incredible story of triumphing over adversity and really interestingly the anxiety she experienced only when she came out the other side of all of that hardship. Oftentimes our body really holds it together for us when we're in a very, very stressful situation and when we're safe, a space opens up and then the anxiety tends to to rise up and say, hey, we need to process this. That's exactly what happened for Deborah and her book is out now. It's incredible. She's an amazing woman and I hope you find the story as essential as I did to listen to. Debbie Samarin, I am so thrilled to have you as a guest on Owning It, the Anxiety podcast. First of all, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. Well, it's such an honor. Um, I suppose for context, I want to rewind. We actually met on the street in Dublin one time when I was toddling home, got tapped on the shoulder, turned around, see this beautiful woman standing before me saying that you had listened to my podcast or you'd read the book and you just wanted to say hi and that was an amazing moment for me and now here you are a published author mega successful in so many ways in your own right no and like literally I rave about your book I give it I get a copy for people whenever I know anyone's like struggling even like people in work I actually buy them a copy I literally swear by your owning a book I really love it because for me when I read it it helped me understand I suppose the scientific stuff as well of what was going on which really gave me a lot of comfort that I wasn't going crazy you know that sometimes you know in terms of how your brain is wired sometimes you just go into fight or flight mode and that's where that anxiety is is coming from and it was just it was really great in terms of them being able to use the tools that were in there around breathing I loved that I love that it's so practical um and yeah it was it also helped me to go searching for additional tools at least I knew what was 
what I was looking for then you know yeah so I would have things like tapping and things like that which I'm like obsessed with are um, you yeah I love it and um, with the because it's the whole affirmation thing so even if I don't get to tap even if I use the affirmation it helps so I, I loved your book so that's why oh. I had to say no because I genuinely just I'm, I'm such a big fan Oh, God. Well, Jesus, thank you so much. Enough about my book. We are here to talk about your book. So you're telling your story in Believing Me and I Believe in You is your story through the lens of how to support a child. Yeah, well, so uh, Believing in Me is really about, it's kind of my journey, really about sharing my journey through care, what it was like living in the care system. Um, And the reason I wrote that was, really around this whole concept of one good adult can have this transformational impact in a child's life, especially vulnerable children's lives. Um, And then believing in you is really about this little girl, Debbie, who doesn't really believe in herself, has people kind of help her along today. And then she learns to actually believe in herself. Um, so it's like and, and she also like helps her little sister and stuff to believe in herself as well. So it's really, really cute. And um, at the time, I think I believe in you is was like the clincher for me in terms of doing the book because yeah. of that representation in terms of being able to go into bookshop books bookstores and for little girls and um, to to see books with a black child on, on the cover and yeah. was was just really special to me so yeah that was- oh it's an incredible achievement I think kids books are so important like we're so much more aware now about how we can support kids to be better functioning adults more emotionally regulated and I think we're going to see hopefully a huge difference in the anxiety levels of you know the younger generation now are going to hopefully grow up so much more in touch with their emotions more understanding even the way like I'm trying to parent Kaylin now it's such a shift away from the way we would would have been parented you know to be told that our feelings are you know we're being silly if we're upset and and all of those things can sow the seeds of anxiety from a very young age and they might seem innocuous but they're mega so congratulations on on playing such a significant role in in really shaping the future generation i mean it's that's what you're doing um but i want to talk about you so you have a story that probably not many people will relate to but it's really really important that we hear these stories and it's also for me if I was to think of anyone who who fits the bill of of owning it and owning what you've been through and turning it around and making it work for you it's you so will you start assuming people haven't read your book yet people don't know your story from the very beginning yeah absolutely so um I was born in England and um my mum and dad I suppose there's a bit of an age gap between them um my dad had worked between um England and Nigeria primarily England that's where he trained and my mum had grown up in Nigeria and when they met I suppose for my mum I think the the big appeal was getting to raise her children not that that was the only reason they got married but definitely I think in comparison to marrying someone that was based in Nigeria full time I think getting to raise her children in England was was a big thing for her um and as time went on I suppose my dad was actually kind of nearing retirement age you know so Mm. he wanted to be more in Nigeria so that kind of caused a lot of friction there as well because that wasn't really where my mum wanted to live 
partly because of societal standards that are different, right? Because of that expectation of the role of a Nigerian wife and, and how you're supposed to kind of be seen and not heard and all of this other mm-hmm. stuff, you know? So um, not only that, my dad had been married a couple of times and his previous wife um, was, her, her kids weren't all 18 yet and they lived down the road. So that caused quite a lot of friction as well because the kids weren't happy that he had remarried which is absolutely fair enough you know um, I completely understand where they were coming from but it's really interesting because they were his second wife's kids so the first wife's kids had been really lovely to them so in hindsight I just wish that that same level of of um, harmony was there but I, I suppose I think that the first wife's kids would have been a lot older so they've been a lot more mature maybe to yeah to handle the situation yeah. but anyways no no blame on anyone at all it was just a tough situation for for everyone but eventually you know it there were huge cracks in their marriage caused by a lot of those two factors and they end up splitting up and I suppose my mom developed depression I, my dad says she'd had it since she was a teenager I didn't I didn't know about it the first time I really saw my mom being depressed was towards the end of their marriage and she would just lock herself in her room for weeks and how old were you at this point I would have been like eight nine when she started doing this around nine yeah eight yeah around eight actually um so yeah not because nine was then the year I lived with my dad um so I remember um you obviously don't know that's depression a it's not really discussed in our culture mental health and um, but b we weren't obviously talking about it back then the way that we are now and no. there's posters everywhere and things about the signs um of depression um i just didn't know what was wrong with my mom and i i tried to help i remember like getting a phone book you know you know you had like family phone books with all your family and friends numbers beside the landline back in the day and just calling people and asking them to come and help and get my mom out of her room um and remember my dad coming in and seeing all of these people there and um being embarrassed I guess but didn't really emote just walked Mm -hmm. past them and then came back and said this is a family matter you all leave and then he got a carpenter to take the door off the hinges and that was all that happened you know so just kind of like I'm not really tolerating this I'm not paying attention to this um which obviously was really hard for my mom who was obviously really suffering exactly and and really craving him to to show that he cared about her and a lot of there was other stuff that was going on in the background as well um that I wasn't really aware of until my mom came home one day and started smashing all of the um car windows um in the uh, in the garage and then all of the tv screens as well Mm. I just that's not like my mom at all so I, I didn't know what was happening but that was the day we left um, and we got in a taxi and um who's we went to my granny oh me and my siblings and my mom okay um so I have three well sorry I have I had two younger siblings at the time I didn't know my mom was actually pregnant with my little brother um simultaneously at the time as well um so like my poor mom must have been just literally in in fight or flight mode but yeah. at the same time she wanted to do what was best for her kids and I think she did try to from what my granny tells me anyways they did try to figure out a way that they could possibly reconciliate um, and get back together but his family weren't really supportive of that and my mom my granny tells me that like you know his family would have stopped my mom going into the home to even pick up clothes for 
us for the kids you know while they were split yeah. up so they weren't very supportive of them getting back together I think primarily because my mom wasn't like they're from a very conservative family so they would absolutely be all of this like women should be seen and not heard you know and um, so I think because my mom was able to voice an opinion my mom my mom was strong enough in a society that really frowns upon divorce to actually leave when she was really unhappy and not happy with how she was being treated anyways so um she left and to cut a long story short we ended up moving to Ireland when I was 10 right okay um and at that, that point awesome. you have your all that you've learned so far is that mental health struggles are there's no place for them it's not ideal it's not welcome and this is what happens when someone struggles so like you probably without realizing it would have internalized that you know it's not okay to feel how you really feel if you're feeling down I wouldn't have even known it that way you know no one would have even told me like your mom's suffering from a mental health issue or we're not treating it properly I just I just didn't understand I just didn't understand what was going on I was so young and I suppose for me and my mom it was really different in that we'd always had a really difficult relationship and she'd always been more like displayed more emotion I'd say with my brother and my sister um as opposed to me and I'd always been the child who talked back the child mm-hmm. who asked questions instead of just eating her breakfast you know like I'd always been the trouble child I feel even though I tried to be good not in like a I wasn't like I wasn't a, a really bad kid at that age but just I was my mom would say eat the cornflakes I'd be like no I want rice krispies that type of thing you know yeah. just difficult from that perspective as opposed to my siblings who just eat the cornflakes even if mm-hmm. they didn't want it you know yeah so I remember even something as small as that like I would have said oh no I want rice krispies instead and she would have started beating me up this is a breakfast before going to school and my dad was always my protector so he was the person that stepped in if if that got too bad right because in Nigerian society it's not against like it's it's okay to hit your kids but obviously to a certain extent right like give them a you know the wooden spoon or whatever that we have in Ireland but like a tap you know not completely beat them up and that's Um, what was happening to you that was what was happening to me at the time but my dad was my protector at that point you know when we lived together because he would step in if it ever got too much and so when I moved here my my mom like my dad was no longer there to be my protector and I was really pushing the boundaries not so much about rice krispies anymore I was becoming um a teenager but I was I suppose to be completely honest with you I'd been very sheltered um right up until moving to to Ireland not that that's an excuse but literally like Sundays were by were up for were all day in church and um, it wasn't just like an hour or two of masks my dad was a pastor as well so literally all day, all our books were Bible books. Wasn't allowed to watch Sabrina Teenage Witch or Harry Potter or anything because there's witches in it. Wasn't allowed to wear black or red or anything. So like really, really conservative upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved over here, my dad wasn't here anymore. And there weren't all of these like expectations to be like the pastor's daughter and be perfect. I suppose I started really pushing those boundaries, staying out late and um, started smoking. My mom wouldn't have known that, but started drinking, hanging around with kids that I shouldn't have been hanging around with but yeah. I'd had you just really trying to assert time. your independence and create some freedoms for yourself within that system yeah like part of it was a bit of escapism you know of like the longer I stayed out the longer I wasn't going home to deal with 
what was going on at home. And for my mum, even going out with my friends wasn't a good thing. You know, I was supposed to go to school, come home, help out with the kids, do chores, do homework, go to bed. Like going out every day and playing with your friends wasn't a thing that she was interested in. So just even going out, I was getting in trouble. I also had to find kind of inventive ways to go out. So like altar serving was always on on a Friday um, after school. So we'd all say we were going altar serving, get changed and go up to town in our like little rara skirts and stuff. But, you know, it's just little things like that. So I was really pushing those boundaries. And um, I suppose one night I and like it's, it's horrible to think about because I really empathize with my mum because I don't know what I would do if I had a child that was behaving this way. Like I was 11 and um, the first night I went into care, but I stayed out to like midnight or something, you know, um, with my friends. And my son is 13 now. I can't imagine him not answering the phone and, and staying out and pushing the boundaries in that way. Yeah. Um, it would be absolutely terrifying for me. But I suppose, I don't know, it, I, my mum had a lot that she was going through already. Um, and I don't know why, but it was not really an option to like talk about it. It was an option yeah. to, and I, I, I think a bit of it is maybe a, a bit of what my dad had done. She, she just didn't let me into the house that night. She threw a, a bucket of water over, the, some water over the um, outside the window on me. So I was like freezing um, and she just wouldn't let me in for love nor money. And it was just, I think she was just trying to punish me for a little bit, but eventually I was, I just went off and, and went to a friend's house um, to sleep on their couch. And then she um, called the police to, because she didn't know where I was, but she assumed, you know, I was probably in a friend's house. I think again, like assuming, I don't know, but I think from, from reading the, the letters and the reports um, in hindsight, it seems like she called them to try and just bring my daughter back home and, and help to resolve the situation she didn't think that I would end up going into care that night you know okay yeah and um so I end up going into care that night so the police come and they determine that you're better off not going home yeah yeah and is that because you say like were you were you okay with that I honestly I don't remember having a lot of say in what was going on I think that they had um gone to meet with my mom and that conversation hadn't gone well so they decided to take me into care okay that's that's my understanding of it um how, how did in how, terms of how did you feel at that moment terrified I didn't know what was happening you're surrounded by a police b you're going to a stranger's home you know um and I felt so much guilt and shame and that I brought this to my mom's door you know that I brought more hassle to her um and that was really tough for years afterwards to deal with. But I suppose one thing that happens when you first go into care is you get like a medical examination and things. And so through that, they would have seen like scars and bruises on me and then asked me about them. And I would have said what they were from because a certain part of me didn't want to be getting hit either. You know, didn't want to necessarily be in an environment where you're like terrified of, of what's to come and Jesus, I can't, I can't even imagine that for my little boy right now. So that must have been why I actually talked about it with the doctor and, and they decided to keep me in care longer. It's but really I was in brave a, of you to have done that. It didn't feel that way. It felt like I was kind of, you know, betraying my family, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, <clears throat> sorry. So end up going into care and um, when you're in care, like, I suppose I'd gone in under an emergency circumstance 
So I'd been placed in like literally just like a series of emergency foster homes because they get a foster home for like two or three weeks and then I'd have to move. And nobody would tell you when you move into the foster home that like you're just going to be there for two or three weeks. It's just someone shows up one day, tells you to pack your stuff and tells you that you're moving. And they don't tell you that like it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's just because this is a short term placement. So it's definitely left me with like between this and just everything that happened with my parents and how it came about that I moved here because my dad actually brought me here after a year after my mom moved here. It's such a long story. We'll read about it in the book. But mm. um and essentially kind of abandoned me with my mom because I think he was kind of fed up of, of trying to raise me by himself. And and I think between that and the constant moving has definitely left me with this huge sense of, of independence as an adult of never wanting to depend on anyone for anything. Um which is obviously feeds into relationships then, right? In terms of how that how that goes in terms of that huge fear of, of abandonment if you actually open up to Absolutely. To and and of course, like how would you be any other way? Because your fears were realized, you know, which is not something anyone of that age should ever, ever have to confront. Before we get to the point where you're pregnant and having your boy, did you have any sense of feeling anxiety in your body or mind like did you you said like you would kind of maybe be fearful of the next time your mom might hit you or something did did you have any like awareness of of how anxiety was manifesting for you or were you just completely in survival mode no the way I what did I describe it as I didn't have the word anxiety when I was growing up restless I used to describe it as being restless okay um so I didn't know and I didn't understand why I'd feel restless you know I just knew sometimes I'd feel a lot more um and I think and I think to a certain extent um you know yeah we just didn't talk about things like anxiety in this in the same way at the time so I don't know that I would have even if I even though I went to counseling for so long after I had my son to try and deal with all of those issues again the word anxiety was never really used mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it was it was it wasn't even trying to diagnose something it was trying to just help me through all of those different situations that I was that I was struggling with you know so I never really had the term until after I did my accounting exams because when I was off on study leave I I just it was nearly like the first sorry so that that was years later after my mum passed away and when my mum passed away I was about like 17 so I didn't really deal with it. I just went straight into doing my leaving sir. I had a human that was depending on me and that was my focus. And um, years later was when it really kind of started coming back up for me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you think so, it was only then when you were safe that your body could bring all those feelings to the fore so you could process them? It's like a majorly delayed reaction. Yeah, exactly. And it was nearly like once my, it's not even like necessarily just even being safe. It was like once it clicked in my brain that I was safe and things were okay. And I was very out of that situation, um, which didn't really come until, like I talk about it in the book, like the first time I was asked to do this um, graduate recruitment brochure for the place that I worked. And it was something that had made a huge, like I loved that those brochures when I was growing up in, in college, not growing up, but when I was in college, seeing all of the women on the brochures and be like, I want to be like them when I grow up. So that was when it really sunk in, like, fuck, I'm not homeless. Fuck, I'm not just a teen mom. Fuck, I've actually done this. Like I've actually gotten through college, gotten through a degree, gotten through a master's. I'm doing my accounting exams and I'm working in a really good job. Like it just Previous to that, I was just nearly in kind of autopilot. I would yeah, describe we're just getting it. through it. Exactly. And just um, to fill it, fill in the gaps from when from when you're uh, starting care, living in a care home to working where you are now. You so you got pregnant at thirteen. Yeah. Um. So sorry. No. 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 Sorry. I got pregnant at fourteen. <laughs> so I first went into care when I was eleven, and I was in and out of care until um in and out of care essentially for a couple of years the first time I became homeless was 13 so that was one of the times I would have been taken into care and I got brought to a homeless hostel and then stayed there for a bit and um, then I would have got gotten pregnant when I was 14 when I got moved into a nicer more stable home thankfully and then 15 when I actually had him because I got pregnant in like March and then I had him in December. And when you say you were homeless does that mean you didn't have a care home to go to or a foster home for a period of time yeah so it means so they're literally specifically designated homeless hostels for young kids that are in care um and so they're the first one was a nighttime only hostel called Lefroy house and the way that that works is you're you have a bed for that night but in the morning you're out nobody cares where you go nobody cares if you're going to school nothing um, but someone does come to check on you, either a social worker or someone from like Focus Ireland, if um, if they can get a hold of you, right? And um, if they can get you on the phone. But really, you're supposed to just kind of wander the streets for the day. Um, and they'll check on you just to give you kind of food vouchers and things that you can eat during the day. I was quite lucky that um, the, the first time that someone came to see me was first morning I was in that homeless hostel was this really great woman Shelley from Focus Ireland and she um I guess I don't know she was like explaining how the whole thing worked to me and like you have to call the hostel in the evening to then try and get the place that night and things like that um I don't know if she saw that I looked terrified or what it was especially because when I first moved here I lived in Nace so I wasn't really used to absolutely not used to being in Dublin by myself as routine like so um being in, like right in the heart of Dublin city 
Um, so she took pity on me, I guess, and let me stay in their offices um, during the day. Um, literally would pick me up from my hostel every morning, would um, stay with me until I'd go back to the hostel, would call the hostels to get me a place and, and walk me back to my hostel. And she didn't need to do that. That was massively going above and beyond. I'm sure she had a million other people that she needed to look after. And were you receptive um, to that, to someone showing you that care and affection? Yeah, to like, I mean, I think a certain extent was being really really quiet you know because I just didn't know what was going on and I was trying to like process everything and just everyone you're meeting is a stranger you know but I remember just being very thankful to her and I remember that it was cold so I was very appreciative that I had somewhere warm to go because I remember thinking Jesus where am I gonna go all day because you're not gonna be able to sit like in McDonald's without buying anything I don't have any money just things like that you know yeah um so she was amazing from that perspective because she really saved me, I think, because a lot of people I know, like when you're in that situation, um, you know, you're you're more vulnerable to drugs and everything else that's uh, in, in terms of whoever is, is around you that you can make friends with or, or shows you any bit of kindness, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the going into the homeless hostel initially. And then you had your beautiful baby boy. Yeah, so um, I stayed in that hostel for a few nights and then I went to another homeless hostel that was specifically for young girls, did nighttime only there for a bit and then got like a more permanent place. Stayed there all together for about nine months. And then I moved into what I call my Disneyland care home. There was Mm -hmm. nothing like special about this care home. It was just a normal house, a normal housing estate, but that level of stability was something I'd really craved for like a really long time. So um, when I found out I was pregnant, I was 14 at this point, and um, I'd only been living there like three months. And um, that was really difficult because in the care system, when you when you get pregnant, you have to move out. Wow. You have to move into these specialized care homes called that are literally, I'm so sorry to use the term, but they're still called mother and baby homes. Um, I don't know if they've changed them now, but at the time they were still called mother and baby care homes. Now it's not like anything like what we're thinking, like from years ago, yeah. but I'd heard really scary stories of like, you don't really get any support. And the first time you screw up, your baby's taking off you. It's just all social workers that are there and all of this stuff. And I think that's terrifying for any parent at any age, never mind when you're 14 and you're terrified you're not going to know what to do with with the with the baby um so um anyways I didn't want to say anything I was terrified but eventually I, I did you know within literally that same day <laughs> ended up confessing to um one of the social care workers that worked there and I was terrified I was absolutely terrified I didn't know what I was going to do with the baby I had recently broken up with um my son's father like that was my own decision but it was not something I did not see myself having a child and wanting to get back with him. Even when I got pregnant, he wanted to get back together, but I knew he wouldn't be someone that I would be able to depend on, you know? And mm-hmm. um, he literally was like, you can move down here and me and my mom will like look after the kid while you go to school. And I knew that would not happen. You know, I knew that he would not be someone that I would um, be able to rely on in, in that same circumstance. So I knew I had to really do this by myself if I was going to do it. Um, which was absolutely terrifying and um, I was very thankful the people in the care home essentially converted the care home into a mother and baby home so that I could save the other two girls had moved out and um, 
I was so thankful to them for that because that really completely changed the trajectory of my life in terms of being able to keep my son, being able to learn how to be a mother, um, being able to learn how to be a mother while in school, you know, while juggling that. So I would have stayed there till I was 18. And then when I went on to college, I had those skills then where I was able to know how to look after him by myself while juggling college and exams and everything else that was going on. So through all of this, you have this incredible ambition that despite, you know, this seemingly insurmountable hardship that no one at your age should ever, no one ever should have to deal with, you still were like, no, I'm not just going to get through this. I'm going to thrive. I'm going to going to go to college. I'm going to excel. I'm going to get a big job. You are the most driven, self-sufficient person I think I probably ever met. Like it's seriously the resilience there which you had to build it in such a unfortunate circumstances but it's really amazing to hear that you know you you didn't just want to just get through it you wanted to go on to great things and you did thank you I really appreciate that but the, the really interesting thing is like I don't you're kind of go 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 but literally, in terms of where a lot of that restlessness, <laughs> as I would have mm-hmm. called it ages ago, anxiety essentially came out of when I was doing my exams. Every Before every single exam, this notion would go into my head of like, who do I think I am to think I can do this? If single parents and like black single parents who were raised in care were becoming chartered accountants en masse, if this was a thing, I would know. So who the hell do I think I am to think I can do this? I don't think I'm a genius. So why do I think I can do this? I was just, I always thought this is the exam I'm going to fail. This is where this stops. It's kind of like that imposter syndrome, right? Where you're like, this is where I finally get found out. So after everything, it's this sense of imposter syndrome that really brings anxiety to the fore for you in a way that you can recognize. That is crazy, isn't it? Literally. So that was the, that was the big thing, you know, and I'd have these like panic attacks at like 3 a.m. before an exam and I'd I had this incredible therapist her name was Cherie DeBerg and unfortunately she's passed away now but she was incredible like she went above and beyond she'd also had a son when she was young and she just she was incredible and like whether it was 3 a.m. whatever it was wherever she was away she was always at the end of that phone to support me through those things and to reassure me about how much study I'd done and how much I knew it and like Think about the other exams you've done so far. You got through them. You're able to get through this. So, you know, she really helped me to be able to develop my own confidence and belief in myself to be able to go in and sit those exams. But at the same time, it was even when I was doing my final admitting exams into Chartered Accounts Ireland, I was still going, even though I had a degree and a master's in accounting, still going, nope, this is this is the one I'm I'm failing. I'm definitely not going to achieve this goal. So it's 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 something that is um and I think it's it, from hearing other people as well like I've heard Billy McFadden talk about this in terms of him going to BC and going to college and he talks about that same level of imposter syndrome of thinking like why am I here you know um, and you, you really have to work hard to overcome that and, and that's another reason I've written the book right where the main reason I suppose is that whole concept of this huge transformational impact one person can have in someone's life by just telling them that they can do that because it wasn't that other people around me felt that I could you know my social worker didn't necessarily believe that I was going to succeed and get to college right because they probably don't want to 
they don't want you to be let down or upset like it would be very it would be probably very rare that someone in those circumstances would get to where you got to so you had to you had to really be the one to believe in yourself which is why your book is, is so perfectly titled exactly like there was no malice behind like I remember even a teacher in school pulling me out of class and trying to convince me to do fourth year because I probably wasn't going to do my leaving cert I was the only kid in my class that I know that went directly to college third level so that wasn't her like being mean that's just her based on her own experience that if there's kids that are going to go on to college from that school it was probably not going to be the single mom that was living in care you know that was those were not the people that ended up going to college so this is what I mean in terms of like that one good adult just being able to go home and talk to my social care workers and say this is what I heard at school and them go no absolutely not like if you put your mind to it you can absolutely do it you know it's really important to have that because otherwise I might have gone right maybe I should listen to what people are trying to tell me I should lower my expectations in terms Mm -hmm. of what I want to achieve but I suppose one big thing was just I really wanted to provide a really good life for my son. I wanted to provide the same quality of life for him that I could have given him if I was older and in a more stable place and just not a, a difficult childhood. I didn't want him to want for anything. I didn't want us to struggle for money. So this was the way I knew education was the only way to do that. I knew accounting was like a really good qualification to have in terms of getting a good job afterwards. So I just had to keep going, even though I didn't necessarily believe I was necessarily going to get to the end. I just had to keep going because I had to for him. That was that was my that was my um that was my focus. So yeah, incredible. It's, yeah. It's so you get there. You're here now. You're fully qualified accountant, and you're safe, and you're healthy, and you're happy. Is it? Where's the anxiety at now? Non-existent. Um, I think yeah no absolutely I think it definitely was mainly around you know exams and things coming back up and I had to like go and do additional pieces of counselling because that was when I started sharing my story so I wasn't I didn't necessarily go out to say oh here's my story like so a charity had come to me and said would you help us to raise money in corporate circles by talking about what can happen if they support people from backgrounds like yours so Mm -hmm. a lot of you know, I hadn't really thought about things in that way in terms of when I actually remember the first time I wrote my story down and I started crying, reading back over it. And I just didn't, when I actually did the speech, it was just, I was just going, I just wanted to give that little girl a hug, you know? Yeah. Um, I just didn't understand how I was able to get through all of that. And I was just so thankful to all of the people who helped me at the different stages that I needed to get through that. So it was, it was just a lot of things that were coming back up for me that I needed to just kind of deal with. So I went back into therapy, got your book, loved your book, <sighs> you know, used those tools and was able to work through the things that I was struggling with at the time. And okay, think- so it's when you're kind of trying to show your vulnerability to the world that you needed to be like, I need to kind of build a scaffolding around myself of, of tools and support because up to that point you hadn't shared it. And I suppose you were blending in in society to a point of having you know gotten to college and being in a good job and now you're like hold on I have this whole story that I actually want to honor but in order to do that it's gonna hurt yeah exactly and like a lot of my friends especially because especially kids in care like you don't advertise that you're in care no. you don't advertise that you've lived in a homeless hostel so a lot of my friends especially the ones that I would have gone to college with they're like Debbie I had no idea about this but I was like 
when was I supposed to tell you this? At pranks? At brunch? Like, where was this supposed to come up? It's not something you want to share, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it's something you kind of feel like you have to carry around as, as a piece of shame and, and something that you feel, yeah, it's, it's not something to be proud of. So it was, it was literally like becoming naked, you know, just sharing yeah. everything. Um, but in the hopes that it was making a difference in the hopes that it was helping people and hopes that it was changing perceptions of how people become homeless, creating more empathy for the children in that situation um, and creating more um, support for people in terms of what they actually needed. You know, um, I think we've we've got a long way to go in terms of dealing with the homeless issue in this in this country and dealing with the housing issues in terms of supporting low income, uh, low income families. And I think in particular, joining up those services and joining up that, that thinking in terms of that investment that goes into things is, is something that I'm really passionate about. So that's why I started my charity Empowered Family. And it's really about bringing together social housing, so departments of housing, the education in terms of the access programs and what they're doing in disadvantaged communities there, um, departments of children, youth affairs in terms of what they're doing around childcare places and trying to put children in disadvantaged backgrounds and positive environments, but um, education, bringing all of those services together in one place so that someone right now, like you might be able to get a house as a single mom in Balbriggan, but you might not be able to get a crash unless it's in thingless like a community crash then you might be going to college in dcu that's ridiculous like you're that's not sustainable you're eventually going to drop out let's try and bring all of those things into one location and that's what someone who didn't have a child or someone who isn't coming out of care and doesn't have to rely on low-income housing that's what they would have they would have more options to just be able to go straight into college so it's just about trying to create those opportunities so that people who do want to stand on their own two feet are able to Oh my God, it's it's incredible how you've taken your own um, suffering and trauma and the, it seems like the best way for you to process that is to turn it back outwards and help other people. And it's it's like real inner child work, like going back and helping other kids who, you know, were in your position because you, you can't go back in time and change what happened to you. Um, I'm curious how how does it impact your role as a parent? Because I think most parents these days, when they haven't had your experience, you know, you're, you're so, you're so afraid of making mistakes with your kid. You're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing one small thing that will send them down the wrong path or give them, you know, a complex or more anxiety. I I could imagine if, if, if I were in your shoes, that what given what you'd been through you'd be terrified for your son to just you know get in with the wrong crowd or step foot outside the door how do you how do you handle the anxiety the the normal parenting anxieties around letting your kid kind of go and thrive without worrying that he's going to have what happened to you I think um it's a couple different things one we're like really really close right I have a relationship with my son that I wish I had my mom and I got to have a, a glimpse of that after I had my son actually we we became a lot closer um and um she was my protector then in, in that instance right and she was well while I had her she was it was amazing to for her to meet her grandson but we're incredibly close that's first of all and um, he always gives me all the gossip and who's dating who and and all of that which is which is great and I think it's really important to have that really honest communication um between the two of us and the other thing is, he also knows that I just very much have his back. So no matter what he does, even if he screws up, I'm going to have his back, you know. So that's really important for me him to know. Um, so I remember he was being bullied um, in school 
um, when he was interred in fourth class and when he when he was in third class actually specifically so young and so young and the school did were did very little to deal with I remember the teacher hauling me up one day and was like yes this kid has said the n-word that's offensive to you like literally to you and like it's just that was to you and Liam like that was it like it wasn't like it was offensive to him didn't really want to give any punishments it was just really frustrating and I'm just like I don't really want my child because it was affecting him like he didn't want to have his hair he he always had this like fresh prince of ballet cut and he didn't want his hair cut that way anymore he wanted it quote unquote normal just Aww. that like it was affecting his own self-confidence and his as he was becoming more self-aware you know and I wanted him to grow up as like a proud black man you know yeah. well he's mixed race but you know I want him to own both sides of his heritage and just be be proud of, of both sides of his heritage so I ended up taking him out of that school and putting him in an international school. Cost me an arm and a leg, but it was what was most important for him. And every single morning I put him on that school bus, I felt so proud. He was so happy there. He was so, so settled there. Um, And he really, like, to the extent that, you know, a year later, he did this whole project on the history of Nigeria, you know, and was begging me to make Nigerian food to bring into school for his friends. So he was it was a completely different experience. So that's what I mean in terms of having his back, you know, very yeah. much so. Wasn't going to wait and see. Wasn't going to, didn't like how his school was dealing with it. Wasn't going to let it affect him anymore. Just took him out of the school and put him somewhere else. And again, that's my own thing from, I know how much bullying like that affected me when I was younger. You know, I remember being like one of the first black kids. I was definitely the only black kid that was in my class. And, you know, people would like make fun of how big my lips were which again is just like a normal attribute of being a black woman Mm -hmm. and so I would like suck my lips in because I didn't want people to make fun of that so things like that you know I just didn't want my son to grow up with that same kind of complex and those same kind of issues um so yeah we we have a great relationship in that respect I'm absolutely terrified as he's becoming more older he's obviously a teenager now and he is towering over me at 13 so Mm -hmm. that's fun but he's also just a really great kid like he's a sore kid his friend actually and um, broke broke her leg the other day and um he's like carrying her school bag all around school for her like Aww. he's just that sort of kid you know um, and then another kid was in well so like he ended up carrying two school bags plus his own oh my <laughs> but God. he's just that what sort a... of kid you know that's just and that's, that's all who he is that's all really I mean it's I know it's partly nature but a lot of it is nurture and that's all down to you I can hear how incredibly proud of him you are I want to know if at this point have you had a chance to take stock and be proud of yourself um I think that I'm definitely um proud of the things that I've achieved I I think I give myself the big pat on the on the back for being a good mom when he's 18 and graduated you know um I think you can do that now I think you don't even think you need to wait that long (laughs) um but yeah you're just you're you're just trying to um and uh, you know chatted about it even before we started recording it's been every stage is different you know and this is a new journey that we're on as, as him being a teenager he's always been a really chill kid to the extent that like he could he might have done something wrong like taken apart the printer and I might put him in time for a little bit that was a fun one um you know just just out of boredom like not out of being you know bold or whatever but you know that's not okay I would have told him so he might go on a timeout for a couple of minutes um, when he was younger and literally like you'd have a chat with him and he'd be completely fine afterwards. Like he wouldn't be like moody or anything. He was just like perfectly happy afterwards. But as a teenager, not so much. And I still do timeouts because <laughs> um, oh, yeah. they work. You gotta do what you gotta but, do. Uh, 
they're more for me than for him now that he's a teenager to be completely honest with you but um you know they're um but he, they are it's a different relationship it's he, he's more he is more moody now you know he will mm-hmm. be kind of as he should be I mean if he me. wasn't if he wasn't he wouldn't be a teenager so I think well, this is it yeah like these behavioral things when you're going through them as a parent you're like this is really difficult but actually they're exactly how they should be and if they weren't you'd be worried um but it sounds like at this point you have all of the coping skills and mechanisms to cope with parenting and and not just that but to be able to have like you say to have that open relationship where like that's just gold dust I think you've done a stellar job um before I let you go I just want to ask you about your go-to things these days so I know you mentioned tapping um when we started recording what so give me a scenario if you were to feel overwhelmed with a day in work or I mean I feel like the anxieties you're dealing with now like you say it's almost non-existent but it's the everyday stresses that we all feel what do you turn to when you feel it rising up and how do you how do you downregulate your stress response so I became obsessed with aromatherapy over lockdown. And um, so like literally my house just constantly smelled like lavender for the last two years. And mm-hmm. um, so that's a really big thing for me that I really found worked, particularly in terms of the breathing. Um, and I, if it's a really, really, really stressful day, I will just kind of smother myself, my chest in kind of lavender oil. And um, so that's a really big thing that I've been using, especially if I'm not able to do tapping. It's kind of, I, I don't have a minute. Meditation is also a really big thing for me that I absolutely swear by. So even if I can just do like three minutes of headspace, like I will try and do a little meditation to just try and like wash the day away or power down. Try and yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. If it's been a really stressful day. But you know, I made changes in my life. You know, there's I realized that there were certain things in my life that were causing me a lot of anxiety, you know, and um I made changes, whether it was new groups of friends or you know not having people in my life that that heightened my anxiety in any way and particularly as I was going through a journey of like learning to be a proud black woman so if if I felt that people weren't on that journey or were dismissive of that journey that wasn't things that I wanted to have around me and that that just caused me to have more anxiety and kind of regress you know and that wasn't where I wanted to be there were a lot of people amazing people in my life that were loved me for who I was so I wanted to be around just those people you know yeah, so you know things like that are, are just making those changes where you have those sources of anxiety and yeah meditation is a big thing in terms of just switching off and and yeah the aromatherapy so those are three things that I kind of mainly mainly do and I still do it if I feel like someone's in my life who is who is not um who is causing me anxiety I'll, I'll very much try and distance myself from them which is not something I would have done before you know before I just feel like something's wrong with me I need to try and figure out a way to deal with this person you know yeah Um, oh that's such a commonly experienced thing and I think I mean I certainly wouldn't be the type to be able to say do you know what this isn't making me feel good I'm going to distance myself I constantly turn it back on myself and think it's I'm imagining it or I'm maybe I'm overreacting on the problem so you have you have developed some seriously um powerful life skills and tools that will see you through your next adventures and help your son through you know as he becomes an adult I it's incredible to hear your story it's it's hard to believe at points it's you know it's not something we hear often it's amazing to see you come out the other side of it thriving I mean you're not you're so far beyond surviving you're you're thriving um 
you remind me of this there's this quote that I think I included in one of my books um and it was from this motivational speaker called Zig Ziglar and he says in life I think you go from when you're going on a journey you go from survival to stability stability to success success to significance and now as you bring your book out into the world and it influences all the people who it will influence you need to realize that you have gone all the way from survival through stability through success and you've reached significance and that's incredible thank you thank you I really appreciate that Carla it's an amazing journey and I'm so honored to have had you share with me I hope it's been okay for you to discuss and open up those you know doors on your past which I know isn't easy um and it's probably been emotional for you and I hope you can you can carry on with the rest of your day now but I know that it's going to be a real lift for other people to to hear someone advocate for themselves so much in the face of so much adversity um and if anyone's owning it owning it from work perspective parent perspective owning imposter syndrome making it work for you owning anxiety turning it around letting it fuel your life in a good way it's you thank you thank you so much i really 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 appreciate you taking the time and for the opportunity to come on your amazing podcast Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.